0: You're listening to Humans in Tech. Our podcast explores today's most transformative technology and the trends of tomorrow, bringing together the brightest minds in and outside of our industry. We unpack what's new in physical access, identity verification, cybersecurity, and IoT ecosystems. We reach beyond the physical world, discuss our digital transformation as a species, and dive into the emerging digital experience. Join us on our journey as we discover just how connected the future will be, and how we will fit into that picture. Your host is Lee Dow, VP of Global Marketing at Identive.
1: Thank you for tuning in. Today we're joined by Dr. Richard Koons, newly appointed member of the Identive Board of Directors. Rick brings a significant amount of IoT digital transformation vision and growth strategy expertise to Identiv's board, with his outstanding leadership in the medical industry. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Lee. First, I'd like to mention that you have such an impressive resume. Uh, Perhaps start with just telling us um, a little bit about your background, your area of expertise within the industry.
2: Yeah, sure. So I'm a cardiologist, and uh, I did my uh, training um, in cardiology in Boston at the Harvard Hospitals. Um, <clears throat> that's a long program because I also bought the subspecialty of interventional cardiology. Um, so that was my clinical training. And then <clears throat> during my fellowship at Harvard, um, I was interested in um, in clinical research, more specifically into statistics. So I got a degree in biostatistics um, at the Harvard School of Public Health, a master's degree. and. Um, at the time that uh, I had finished my fellowship and started on faculty, um, initially at the Beth Israel Hospital, then over at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, I um, the, the interventional cardiology programs were taking off, and the FDA was increasing the requirements for approval. So medical devices like those using cardiology could easily be approved by a small single-arm registry. And um, around 1991, 92, the FDA required – those devices to actually stand up to a randomized controlled clinical trial. So being a freshly admitted statistician and cardiologist, um, I was called on by a lot of companies to help design their studies. Oh, I bet. And, uh, yeah, so <clears throat> I started a academic CRO called the Harvard Clinical Research Institute. And uh, we basically, I think when I left um, Harvard 2005, we had 300 employees and we ran probably Seventy or eighty percent of the uh, of the medical device studies in the country um, over the course of the nineteen nineties and early two thousands. So my background is is mainly in practicing clinical cardiology, interventional cardiology, but also in clinical trial methodology.
1: So that's just such an interesting combination, um, you know, having that medical background and then also wanting to um, you know get more expertise in statistics. Uh, and so, how did that transition into your work with Medtronic?
2: Yes, yeah, so, so um part of part of the exposure to medical trial methodology is to demonstrate that um, you really have to have rigorous studies to demonstrate evidence um that you can easily be fooled by uh, studies that don't um, randomize or studies that don't use sham procedures of blinding. So a lot of my interest was really in making sure that um, that when there was a conclusion, it was the evidence was solid. and that's required for any kind of medical therapy. Um, when I was doing studies for Medtronic <laughs> at Harvard, um, the, uh, senior leadership there asked me if I'd be interested in, in joining the company. Um, and, and interestingly enough, my first role was to run a business. And, um, the first business I ran was the neuromodulation business, which is not cardiology, it's, it's neurology. Right. And, and that was a big business. It was about one to 1.5 billion in revenue. And, um, we had 4,500 employees in that business unit. And um, they took a relatively big risk because uh, I had did not have an MBA. Um, I had very minimal business background running the, uh, the CRO. And um, essentially uh, I came on as the president and CEO of the um, neuromodulation business, Tronic. And I did that for about five years and it was fun. Uh, learned a lot about um, devices like deep brain stimulators or spinal cord stimulators, um, different brain targets. It was just fascinating. Um, and then around 2011, um, I moved to – 2010 and 11 – I moved to a more central world, which is probably better for my skill set, and I was the chief medical and scientific officer for the, the company overall.
1: I, um, I was telling uh, our other new board member, Laura Angelini, um, that, uh, who also has a medical device background, um, that you know, most, so many in my family um, work in the medical industry. I'm sort of like the odd duck Um, who, uh, you know, they, they're like, oh, she does something in technology. Um, but, uh, my sister's a neurologist and, um, it's, you know, just talking with her and, you know, some of the, she started off in research and then moved into medical practice and, um. Just uh, always fascinating, you know, the the workings of the brain and, and the body, <laughs> a very interesting topic. So I can, I, even though I'm, I'm not a, you know, not in the medical community, it's, it's still super interesting to me and I, I can geek out on that all day long.
2: Well, the, the neuromodulation space in particular, and that includes things like Parkinson's disease, um, even emotional problems like depression or anxiety, they probably, they are now and probably will be extended to be solved by medical devices which is, is kind of surprising to most people. But um, mainly it's through controlled electrical stimulation of different targets of the brain. And um, it's very complicated, very sophisticated field. It's very exciting, and it's really growing. So um, the medical devices in the brain, you wouldn't think that that's going to be the, the solution, but it's been very successful. And I think the future is going to be um, even more impressive.
1: I completely agree. When I worked at Honeywell, there's a, um, there's a whole... Uh, facility that Honeywell operates, uh, on behalf of the federal government. So they, they, it's Honeywell employees and the whole facility is filled with, you know, Honeywell people, but it actually belongs to the federal government. And, um, while they focus on very specific federal projects, when they do have extra capacity and they get permission, the federal government allows them to use, um, part of that facility specializes in miniaturization, And so they have worked on quite a few, um, you know, brain devices to miniaturize a technology um, so that it can be implanted or or used in the body. So, um, again, I just love stuff like that. It's so interesting to me. Can you give us
2: a large uh, engineering thrust of medical device companies is miniaturization?
1: Oh, is it really? I Um, didn't know that.
2: Yeah. So if you look at the history of a pacemaker, which started out about, you know, the size of a, a softball. And now they're they're so small. A you know, complete dual chamber pacemaker can be inserted with in a catheter, and the, the pacemaker itself is the size of a vitamin pill. that's just um, injected right into the right ventricle. Oh wow! So, and when you think about what that is, that means that they've been able to take the radio, the battery, the electronics, and programming and software, and take it from the size of a softball down to the size of a vitamin pill, um, with even more features. So miniaturization, especially in electrical circuitry and and CMOS chips and everything, like that is is a large part of medical devices.
1: Which has to be such a much better outcome for the patient, I would assume.
2: Yeah, anytime you do an invasive procedure on a patient, if you if you can minimize the invasion, uh, you know the 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 incision you make, uh, the way that you get there. In in a lot of cardiology, most of the highways to get into the heart are through the, through the veins and arteries. So you just make a tiny little stick in the leg and you can pretty much get anywhere in the body. That's so cool. <laughs> um, and so, it, but, but it also requires you to have small enough devices that fit in those arteries and veins uh, to be delivered. So um, yeah, there's, there's a, I would say that if you're looking at the big trends in engineering, it is is really trying, really trying to make things small. And as you make things smaller, you make them faster too because the uh, the circuitry doesn't have to go as far so um this is something that's uh, that's continuing to explode um and then what's even more interesting is um uh that i also serve on a board called rockley photonics which is a silicon photonics company in in um, pasadena and uh, they have chips that not only use copper traces for electrons but not fiber optic traces for photons and um, these are much more efficient chips. So there's just a variety of new ways to, uh, that um, engineering and medical devices is going to continue to uh, evolve.
1: Well, um, I did uh, many, many, many months ago because um, I've, I've been at Identive now uh, just about two years and um, learning more and more about uh, the different market segments. And I did a lot of research on just the IoT in general and the technology stack of the IoT and you know, really figuring out, you know, where do we fit in in that stack and and where are we differentiated? And, um, you know, really, Identiv's RFID-enabled IoT solutions are are integrated now into um, about one and a half billion physical things um, and create that digital identity for every physical object and then deliver that digital transformation across, you know, just such a wide variety of, of industries. Um, and when you look at that, you know, so where do we fit in that stack? And there's a lot of there's not a lot of agreement from an engineering standpoint on even what is the IOT stack, how many layers are there, but, but the, the sounding layer, the perception layer, the data transfer layer is really where we live. Um, and that's really where we are, you know, experts in putting data in motion and making those connections. Um, so, you know, can you give us some personal insight into the rise in demand for more connected and sophisticated healthcare systems within that IOT stack?
2: Yeah, well, just from a thirty thousand foot level, there are all kinds of very strong secular tr- uh, trends happening in in uh, in medicine. Um, the biggest trend I would summarize by saying moving from episodic care to continuous care. So um, the kind of bedrock of medicine is to you know, with a chronic disease like diabetes or heart failure, is to see a provider once every three months or so. Uh, in that ten or fifteen minute encounter that physician tries to predict what will happen in the next three months um, and may adjust the medications, and then the patient's on their own. And their next interaction might be um, a um, a problem associated with that chronic disease, a, an episode that results in them going to the emergency room, maybe an ICU. And that's just not a very efficient way of taking care of patients, right, is to kind of push them out the door, say, hopefully, you're going to do all right for the next three months, and I'll see you when, for my next visit. Um, to, so that's the classic episodic care it's not very efficient uh, patients get in the hospital for three or four days or longer if they have exacerbation of their disease a better way to do it is to have a much more continuous monitoring of their of their disease on a regular basis that can be interacted with either um, providers or extended providers or AI ML systems and that that trend is exploding right now and part of that trend is the advent of a a variety of really interesting sensing devices that have been developed in the last few years and are continuously being developed. And then the second thing is gonna be the connectivity, as you mentioned, um, between this data, uh, leveraging a variety of different um, data highways into cloud. That includes everything from the uh, local radios uh, to an iPhone, uh, faster wireless systems like 5G. Um, And then of course, machine learning and AI, of that data in the cloud, so that that's exploding. But it's it's going to cause a massive transformation in medicine, and so where Identive can fit in to that secular trend, which is going to be positive for IDENTIV, is going to be super exciting because that kind of horses left the barn already.
1: Right. So the the medical and pharmaceutical industry is recognized as you know one like you said one of the largest global marketing opportunities um, and go to market opportunities for Identive IoT products and services. So with your experience in managing disciplined global operations um, for very large multinational healthcare organizations um, and integrating leading-edge tech into process, you know how do you envision our growth plans in this important market?
2: Well, the, the first is going to be to identify specific use conditions um, that will be improved uh, for that. And in medicine, that's not, that's not that hard to do. You basically pick a disease or a, a specific aspect of a disease where you can identify a problem. Um, you know, diabetics who get poorly controlled and have episodes of diabetic ketoacidosis and, you know, which is, can be almost fatal. How, how how can we make that better? And that, that might be that we look at the entire episode and understand where it can data flow and how can we basically add identity specific, you know, value uh, to that chain. Um, so almost all of it starts with, Um, identifying clear-cut problems in the existing system, um, understanding the use cases for those uh, uh, problems, and then getting your um, engineers and creative people to say, we can improve that use condition easily by, you know, adding this value to, um, say, the wireless uh, uh, stream or, or, you know, the way the data is handled.
1: Well, I thought your comment about earlier about, um, you know, how managing... You know, seeing a patient for maybe fifteen or twenty minutes at best every three months, and then they have, you know, some sort of episode, rather than a continuous monitoring of their condition. Um, I, I would think that in your line of work, uh, in cardiology, there's probably a lot of events that maybe they don't even know they're having.
2: Right. Well, in, in the classic example, that is atrial fibrillation, um, which is now becoming much more curable than it was in the past. Uh, but the first thing that has to happen because because of the advances in mapping technology and ablation uh, that are pretty common now. Um, part of it is understanding whether you have the, the problem or not. So, you know, there've been a variety of implantable sensors that have radios that can communicate this uh, uh, stored data um, to the cloud. And then that can be available uh, for um, providers to use. And at Medtronic, we have a very large system like that that we manage. And then we distribute that information to uh, physicians. Um, and they can see in real time what's happening to their patients and get summary data as well.
1: Does it allow for um, predictable insights?
2: It does. And uh, the um, a lot of the even implantable devices are leveraging, um, the using the familiar term called edge computing, mm-hmm. which is where ML is done in, in the can, in the box mm-hmm. itself, rather than having to go to the cloud for analysis. And so many of our uh, pacemakers, for example, that also detect terrible rhythms like atrial fibrillation or even worse ventricular fibrillation, which can kill you. They can customize to the patient um, how to uh, say do something called overdrive pacing when this device sees a set of rhythms that has been trained in that patient to be associated with a bad outcome. Oh, and so then,
1: specific and unique to that patient.
2: Yes, specific. Yes. Well, there's there's two things. There's there's going to be the the cluster of all patients to give you great insight because of the sample size Mm -hmm. and they can fine tune that further with the patient itself by using uh, edge computing in the device within the patient. So that that's happening already. And and a variety of changeable algorithms are are occurring and that's um, and that's happening in not only cardiology, it's happening clearly with our diabetes where we have closed loops Mm -hmm. systems for continuous glucose monitoring and and administration of insulin to keep someone exactly in the, the 80 to 120 zone. Um, And then we do also that in deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's. We have closed loop systems that monitor brain signals and alter the output um, based on uh, uh, outcomes that it can measure and trains it for specifically for that patient.
1: So how do you stay super hyper connected to, you know, I mean, the thing with we talk about medical devices, right? And med tech is if it's like this really, you know, fine, finite Little ecosystem, but the truth is is that within that, there are so many specializations and you know, subcategories of topics. Um, you know, how do you stay on top of what the latest and greatest is and trends and and med tech? Well,
2: um, it all depends on what the role is. As a in my role as chief medical and scientific officer, um, you know, I, I'm responsible for making sure that I'm on top of. Disease conditions that might be, be that benefited from this, and we have a lot of people who do that, but specifically with the physician input um, as opposed to an engineering input, and it's easy because if you're curious, it's fun. <laughs>
1: right. Right. Yeah, I can see that.
2: <laughs> yeah, and so you know, I'm fascinated by the physiology and pathophysiology, and and so are all my colleagues that, that I worked with when I was in Medtronic. So um, you know, they're constantly uh, interfacing with uh, their uh, physician customers. Um, They attend many of the scientific meetings uh, where they're brought up uh, Medtronic is also heavily involved in the publication side of things. So we work with doctors on publications and we actually have our own publications and and or support, you know, independent publications. Um, uh, You know, a lot of the devices we have, we want to have completely independent. So we want them to write the papers, not us. But at the same time, we support them on those on those issues, too. So being being uh, uh, staying abreast of the literature. Staying abreast of current, you know, water cooler talk with physicians. What's bugging them the most right now um, is uh, is really the critical inputs that you have to have um, that gives you the ideas. And then, of course, to add the interface with uh, you know electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, uh, who that can solve is is ultimately the uh, problem. I mean, the the, the common model. A medical device, in how someone solves something, which is more mythical maybe than than real, <laughs> but but was at one point an important thing. Is that a physician comes to a, an engineer with a problem, and then the engineer solves it. And in the case of Medtronic, that's how the company started in the nineteen fifties. In Minnesota, um, there was a famous heart surgeon, Walter Lilahai who did world-class pediatric heart surgery, and people from all over the world were flying to Minnesota, Minneapolis, to have this uh, surgeon operate on them. When these kids got operated on, they had to put in temporary pacemakers because the the, the uh, impact of the surgery on the heart stunned their pacemaker system, so they had to be electrically stimulated for a couple of days. Back in the 50s and late 40s, all the pacemakers were these big vac- vacuum tube boxes that got plugged into the wall. Oh, wow taking ac and transferring it to dc energy and literally there's pictures of them they're they're, they're like the size of um huge carts that they would wheel around you know these little kids one um one evening in december there was a storm in, and the electrical uh, support or power was off for a couple hours and a baby died who was dependent on an ac powered pacemaker And so Walter Lillehide talked to the founder of our company, a guy named Earl Bakken, who at that time was an electrical engineer repair person in the the hospital and took care of those vacuum tube systems and asked him, this is never gonna happen again. I need to have a battery powered pacemaker. And the story from this almost, it is mythical, but the story is that Earl went to his last copy of uh, Popular Electronics, (laughs) went to the back pages and, Bought a circuit diagram for a metronome, for oh yeah, like a
1: piano metronome.
2: Yeah, and at that time, they just you know Motorola just came out with the first transistors, and so it was a transistor-based one. This was like the 1951 or 52 or something like that. And um, he basically developed this metronome in a box he built himself with wires that came out that could be used for pacing. And he you know worked with them to find out the right power requirements. And um, and that was used in uh, immediately after for a couple of years, and every one of those patients got operated on, and that's how the company started. It I didn't know more, that. More.
1: That's such an interesting yeah. story. So oh, wow.
2: it is a great story, but it, it it goes with one of the roles of how you solve a problem is you have to have the unmet need identified, and that's going to be best done by the clinician in medicine. Mm-hmm. Sees this who every day sees a problem in their practice or or you know they get the best insight because they deal with it every day and then to be able to translate into a problem that can be understood by an engineer who then can try to solve the problem um, and that's whether that's in spine you know work where you're looking at you know pedicle screws and rods or very delicate electrical work like deep brain simulators, that's the common pattern of, of um, identification of a problem. And invention and solution.
1: Well, I would think it's such an amazing field to work in if you like to solve puzzles and problems.
2: It is, and 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 you know, I think we have less count. We have one hundred and twenty. Medtronic had one hundred and five to one hundred ten thousand employees, and I think about thirty thousand were engineers.
1: Oh wow! Yeah. Wow. That's so huge. And,
2: and they're and they're all pretty smart. Oh, I'm <laughs> so, sure. I'm sure. You know, yeah. So they they and they're used to understanding where to take the ball when a problem has been identified and to work back with the visions and with their prototypes and everything else. And it's exciting.
1: Yeah. Well, you've had just such an amazing career. Um, What do you see in the future overall for MedTech transforming healthcare?
2: I think it's going to be, um, I think it's going to be a large um, movement in sensors. Um, I think that's something that's going to explode in MedTech to some degree. And I'm talking about, and I'm seeing explosions right now and things like um, there are companies now making watches that look like they can measure blood pressure, look like they can measure glucose without using a needle, um, can measure uh, a variety of different parameters that we never thought you could measure before. Um, and these are going to be wristwatches. Um, and so these these kind of, again, going to a continuous medicine is going to be a way that we can start to look at how do we solve a problem that needs continuous input? And that's going to be a big part of med tech. So I don't think it's gonna be a matter of saying, here's the $5,000 pacemaker, just buy it and good luck. <laughs> it's gonna be, we're gonna sell you a pacemaker and we're gonna guarantee you that this patient's gonna be fine for the next five years. And we're gonna sell you the entire system, including the, the, the sensor, the measurement, the connection with your provider as a package, because we're more interested in the outcome for the patient than selling you just the box. And I think that's gonna be a big trend in medicine. I think the other big trend in, in medical devices is going to be um, management of the data. And what I mean by that is using the word data provenance. And what that is, is the sticky rules and rights and consents required to be able to share data. It's very complicated. Um, it hasn't been worked out yet, but as we see better computing power and, and, uh, and more um, applications of artificial intelligence and machine learning, it's going to require a lot of data from patients. And we're still working out, you know, privacy issues and the rights and stuff like that. And and it's it's a it's a relatively hairy problem, but it it will be solved. But it's just another trend that we have to pay attention to.
1: Well, it's not only a hairy problem, but um, I don't know if you knew this about me, but I started my career in the U.S. Senate, and um, you know, so I've written and drafted you know legislation, uh, and you know, I've watched people give testimony, and I sort of. I'm at the point where I just want to throw things at the TV when I watch people try to, when, when I watch like our, our governing bodies try to um, legislate some of these things and the, listen to expert testimony because they, I mean, no one can be an expert at everything and you have to make very significant decisions from a legislative standpoint when you're in those roles. Um, and, and so not only is it, you know, there's a lot of complexity, but there's also um, just a level of understanding that, that really isn't there. Um, and, and not just in federal government, right. But also in state and local, we also see that with, um, some of the physical access control products that are coming out, you know, with facial recognition and biometrics and that sort of thing that there's just not enough, um, deep subject matter expertise guiding those decisions today. Um, so, so that continues to make it a challenge as well, right?
2: It is. And I think, I think that's going to, um, it's the, the two issues about the data sharing component is that, um, Data sharing is going to be required for us to be able to get the the amount of data where you can apply learning, mm-hmm. uh, machine learning and, and AI. And that's gonna be that's gonna be good. Um, but it also is gonna require us to understand, you know, who who, who is gonna be managing that data, who's curating that data? Is it gonna be safe? Um and this is something that's just not well worked out. The other is, you know, what level of consent do you need from patient to leverage their data? You know, um, when you go to twenty three andMe to turn in your data, you know they they can sell that data later.
1: Right.
2: People are finding out. Well, you know, this company just made money on my DNA. Right. <laughs> Why am I not being monetized on that? Um, so these are these are sticky issues. Um, you know, it, it's an extension of the the HIPAA issue. Uh, you know about sharing data, but I think it's gonna that's gonna be very um, active um, going forward because of the. Massive ease of use of wide and large amounts of data. Um, I mean, we're seeing that already in the in the, in the um, liquid biopsy business. This is these are the uh, companies that you know, are looking for early signs of cancer in uh-huh. your blood, um, and these companies are really taking off. But the key is they're getting your entire DNA system, you know, set up when, when you're turning your blood in. And the question is, well, if that company's monetizing inability to predict cancer and are using my dna should I get money for that. And that's a big discussion that's going on right now. So, I think that I think the data prominence issues are going to be just just as um, complex, but also it will move forward um, as the technology on, on data handling.
1: The um the thing that I picked up from, you know, quite a few of your examples is really being able to better focus on delivering positive outcomes for patients. Correct.
2: That's a great way to put it. It's you, you're not saying here's a disease you need this you know box put into you. It's here's a disease we're going to give you this outcome which is good for you, um, and that's that's widening the responsibility and accountability of the company. Um, and that there are many terms for that. One term is called value-based healthcare, uh, where you you look at the patient and understand the patients is the one with a the disease. The patients is the one you're focused on. You need to make that patient better not just sell them a device Mm -hmm. and then wipe your hands, it's you're selling them a solution. And uh, so to focus on outcomes, it's always been difficult in the past because um, medical records were always so difficult to work with, you know, they weren't intended to be aggregated. Um, Very difficult to follow patients, you know, um, because you don't know if they, if they go to a big tertiary hospital, we don't know where they're going to next. So measuring outcomes, unless you had a structured clinical trial, which are very expensive, you really can't measure outcomes. But now with uh, a much you know better ease of use of data and data flows um, and systems like, you know, 5G and, and, and radio systems, we can start to get um, a variety of follow up through the Internet. And if you look at companies like um, Verily, you know, which is uh, one of the Google companies, you know, their whole focus is understanding how to utilize, leverage the Internet to follow patients follow people longitudinally so i just think there's going to be um, a lot more tools to be able to to make some very interesting applications i think identify is going to be right in the center of this uh, because um, if you look at like you said you know the movement of data um, and also of, of potential devices and drugs mm-hmm. um, there's going to be a lot better highways to attach that information on um, once we get through the um, some of the technicalities, but also some of the policy issues like the provenance.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I know you're one of our newest board members, um, but I found this conversation really fascinating discussing, you know, just the transformational power of technology on the healthcare industry. And I think you brought up some really important topics and points that we're probably going to want to explore in additional future podcasts.
2: Great. Well, thanks so much, Lee. It was very really fun.
1: Of course. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe. For me, we drop a new episode every Thursday.
0: Meet UHF RFID Tom Labels. Our thin RFID on metal portfolio is a flexible way to tag and track metallic items with the highest ultra high frequency performance. Tag any type of metal item in industrial applications, container tracking, metal-based commodities and goods, bike tagging, and practically any application in the automotive industry. Learn more at identif.com. Smart, simple, single-use technology can put valuable time back in the hands of healthcare workers and around the world. Identif's capacitive fill level sensing tags are the first passive NFC-enabled sensing solution to monitor fill levels. Simply attach the tag to any cartridge, bottle, or liquid-filled container to sense the fill level. No external sensors or special equipment required. The tags can also sense if syringes or auto-injectors have been properly administered, empowering clinical trials, patient compliance, and telemedicine applications. Learn more at identive.com. Physical security, identity verification, the IOT. The hyperconnectivity of our lives will only grow more pervasive. As technology becomes more automated and experiences more augmented, it's up to us to preserve our humanity and use new tools and trends for good. The only question is, are we up for the challenge?